And if you've been with us this summer, you know that we have been looking at the Psalms. And the, the title of our series in the Psalms is God's Gifts, okay? And, and this is actually a very uh, fitting theme for the Psalms because the Psalter, or the, the whole book of Psalms, is God's gift to the church. God has given the book of Psalms a, as a gift to the church. And, and one of the main themes and one of the main purposes of the book of Psalms is to teach us about the human experience of worshiping God in a fallen world. So what is it like as a human being to worship God, but to do so in a world that's, that's broken and that's kind of falling around us? Uh, and so if, if we look at the scriptures, if we look at the Old Testament, kind of how we see God revealing himself, uh, the Torah, uh, so the first five books of, of the Bible, all the way through those historical narratives that we see in the Old Testament, uh, the main theme there is God revealing himself. It's God's words from himself to his people. Uh, but then in the Psalms, we shift. We get a, we get a, a turn now, and we see that God or, or human beings are responding to God's revelation. So that's really what the Psalms are doing. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing human beings now responding to the revelation that they've gotten in that first part of the Bible. And so we see Psalms of, of praise. We see Psalms of lamentation. We see Psalms where, where uh, the people of God are praying for God's help. And all throughout the Psalms, uh, what, what the psalms are after, what the psalmists are, are trying to do is to stir our emotions and our imagination, to stir our emotions and our imaginations and, so that we not only understand God uh, uh, mentally and philosophically, but that we can connect with God in our hearts and in our emotions. So we see psalms of ecstatic joy. We see awe and wonder. We see gratitude. We see anger. We see grief. We see sadness. We see, we see fear. We see confusion. And all throughout these psalms, uh, the, the various writers of the psalms use poetic language and structure to connect with our hearts, to give us illustrations that we can use to connect with God. But not only do we see these emotions themselves in the psalms, but we also see the, the cause of these emotions. So what are the things that causes these various emotions? Well, we see God's faithfulness, God's salvation and his provision. We see relief from, from past struggles being, being fixed. We see hope and optimism for the future. And we also see anger. We see sadness at injustice, at sin. Today we're going to talk about some of these difficult kinds of emotions we're going to talk specifically about suffering and all the emotional experience that comes with suffering. And the questions that we want to ask are, what do we do with suffering? What, what do we expect from God in our suffering? You see, sometimes suffering feels so random and unfair, and it's something that we don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about suffering in the church. We like to sing songs about uh, God's mercy. We like to sing songs about uh, God's goodness and God's provision to us. We like to sing songs that are encouraging and joyful. We want to show the world that we as Christians have joy, that we're a people who God has made happy and glad. And yet, we need to know how to suffer because we're going to suffer. This world is not going to be perfect. This life is not going to be perfect. We will suffer. And so we need to know how to suffer. And Psalm 102 helps us to do that. 
So if you would, just turn to uh, Psalm 102. That's going to be found on page 501 in your pew Bible. And just a side note here, if you don't have a copy of the Bible that you can read in your own language, uh, we have Bibles right there in the pew, and we would invite you to just take that with you and let that be our gift to you. Uh, We believe that the most important book that you can have on your bookshelf is God's Word, God speaking to us through the Bible. So if you don't have a copy of of, of the Bible, please uh, take that little black Bible with you uh, today. So as we look at Psalm 102, a lot of the Psalms have uh, what are called these superscripts. So it's those words right under the, uh, right, right under the, the title in your Bible. Uh, it's the, the words that often tell us maybe who wrote the Psalm or, or what it's about. And oftentimes we don't get all the information that we need. We don't always get uh, the, the information of what the Psalm is about. In the case of Psalm 102, uh, we know exactly what the Psalm is about from, 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 the, from the get-go because right here in the superscript, it tells us what this psalm is about. So right here in the superscript, these words here at the very beginning, it says, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So that's what this psalm is about. This, this psalm is a psalm that shows us how to pray when we suffer. And it's a psalm that shows us how God responds in our suffering. So how do you handle suffering? What are your expectations from God in your suffering? Well, let's read Psalm 102, and we'll consider these questions. This is God's word. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle my tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all your generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked down at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord 
and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. In this psalm, the psalmist invites us to consider how we can handle suffering well, how we can continue to worship God while connecting with these feelings that are, that are going on in our hearts and these physical feelings that may be happening in our body. But not only that, we learn how God handles our suffering. So not only how we handle suffering, but how God handles our suffering. And so what we find today, we're going to consider a few points right out, right out of the passage of how we handle suffering and how God handles our suffering. And the first point we're going to consider is, number one, God meets us in our worst suffering. God meets us. He meets us in our worst suffering. And so we're going to look there at verses 1 through 11. So God meeting us in our sufferings. We, we see here in the opening two verses that the psalmist makes a direct appeal to God. He makes a direct appeal. Let's look here, uh, the first verse, uh, uh, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily when I call. And so what's the psalmist doing? He's, he's asking God. He's saying, come, listen, consider, respond. Respond to me, O God. As you might recall in the, in the, in, in the superscript, just a, a, a little bit higher, you remember that you know, the psalmist is pouring out his complaint. Uh, in verse 2, he says, Do not hide your face from me. And so if you were here last week, you'll remember uh, Paul did a great job leading us through Psalm, uh, through Psalm 13, and we saw that very same phrase, Do not hide your face from me. And so essentially the psalmist is saying, God, look at me, bless me, give me your grace. In verse 2, again, he says, answer me speedily when I call. And so there's a sense of urgency. God, come right now. I need you right now. The, this, this word call, the, the, the word that's used here, that's translated as call in our English Bibles, uh, there's a sense of uh, accosting or confronting. So in, in a sense, this, the psalmist is saying he's, he's cornering God. He's accosting God. He's, he's you know, confronting God and saying, God, I need you right now. This is urgent. So in our Western mind, as we, as we read that, as we read these, these urgent calls uh, to God, we say, well, this, this psalm already feels a bit uncomfortable to us because we think, well, well, who are we to confront God and to make demands? Who are we to come to God like this, with this kind of attitude, confronting God, complaining like this? Shouldn't we focus on being grateful? Shouldn't we focus on what, what God has already given us? Well, I think what happens when we, when we do that, that, that kind of leads us to uh, a, what I call a, a tame kind of Christianity that only wants to focus on the, the, the happy side of it. The, we only want to focus on the joy. You know, we say, well, God doesn't want to hear my complaints, and I know these other people in my church, they don't want to hear my complaints. You know, uh, 
if anything, what we should be doing is just, you know, rejoicing and, and, you know, giving thanks to God. We want to focus on the good, encouraging things. It's going to be discouraging if I'm just pouring out my complaints. We'll see what happens is, you know, when we have this mindset, not only are, are we falling short of you know, worshiping God in, in, you know, in, the, in the truth of what's really going on in our lives, but oftentimes the, the unbelieving world, when they come and they see this kind of attitude, this kind of you know, focus on only the good, the, the, the good encouraging things, they see right through this. They say that, you know, this isn't going to help me. I, I've got real problems. Okay, these Christians, they don't understand what life is really like, or maybe they do, but they're just, they're just, gonna, they, they're just content to gloss over it. This reminds me of when I was in college. You know, this is exactly how I felt uh, when, I, when I initially went to college. I went, you know, went to uh, East Carolina University. And, uh, you know, at that point, I, I wasn't a Christian. I'd grown up going to, to church, but I thought, in my, so I thought in my mind, okay, there are basically two kinds of Christians, and I'm not interested in, in being part of either one of them. On, on the one hand, you have a set of Christians who are just kind of mean and, and judgmental, and they're always just kind of hitting you over the head with law and, and, and you know, the, they're the Bible thumpers. And then on the other hand, you have the, the, the lovey-dovey, always cheerful, always happy and chipper, and they can't really connect with the kind of problems that I'm dealing with or the kind of problems that exist in the world. They just seem too happy and too cheerful. And then I met a guy named Drew who, he was a lot like me. He liked a lot of the same music that I liked. Uh, he enjoyed sports. I'm a big sports fan. He liked that as well. And Drew was very honest about the fact that he did not have things together. He was, he was not together. And yet Drew loved Jesus. And I could see that in his life. I could see that he was okay with the fact that I've got problems in my life, and I, I can't deal with these problems on my own. I need a God who is going to come and, and rescue me. He's going to rescue me from the, the problems that are going on in my heart. He's going to ultimately rescue me from every problem that we see going on in the world. And in the meantime, it's okay to lament and to be honest about the fact that this is hard, this is difficult. This is the attitude that the psalmist has here in, in Psalm 102. He sees the world as... as a broken place. And he himself is a broken, desperate man crying out to God for help. And God, unlike the other idols of, of the nations, God's able to listen and hear him and respond. If we continue in our psalm here in verses 3 through 11, the psalmist gives us a bunch of poetic analogies to, to express the horrific extent of his suffering. So I'm going to Go through these, and, and we'll see uh, all these different poetic analogies that he uses to really describe what he's going through. In verse 3, he says, For my days pass away like smoke. And so what he's really telling us there is that, you know, he feels like his life is just fleeting and meaningless. In verse 3, he says, My bones burn like a furnace. So you, you can just imagine the feeling of your bones burning like a furnace. That's just describing searing pain. In verse 4, My heart is struck down like grass and withered. So you can see the kind of grief and humiliation that the psalms is experiencing. At the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, he says, I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. And so right now, you see that the psalmist is grieving so hard that 
he's forgotten to eat. He's not even eating. He's starving. He says his bones cling to his flesh, so he's reduced to skin and bones. He's, he's, he's starving. He's, he's, he's grieving that hard. In verse 6, he says, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. So when I was studying this passage, uh, believe it or not, this week, and this is serious, I visited a website called owlpages.com. Owlpages.com is a, it's a web encyclopedia that's all about owls. And I learned a lot about owls. Um, and specifically the desert owl. Uh, the desert owl is native to a bunch of regions in Palestine and, uh, you know, in the Gulf, in the Middle East, and in North Africa. And the thing about the desert owl is that the desert owl lives all by themselves, basically, in the desert, as you might expect you know, from, from the term desert owl. And it's basically a scavenger, and you know, it's, it's hunting for food. And so by comparing his own experience to the, the desert owl, the psalmist is really just describing his own loneliness and his isolation and his vulnerability. I mean, when you're out alone in the desert, there's predators. It's not safe out there by yourself. There's no protection. These desert owls don't travel in packs. They're just by themselves, exposed. So that's how the psalmist feels. In verse 7, I lie awake. So insomnia, anxiety, paranoia, always looking over your shoulder. You can't even sleep. Again, in verse 7, I'm like a lonely sparrow on a housetop. Again, just like the, the comparison to the desert owl, loneliness, isolation, vulnerability. In verse 9, I eat ashes like bread. So the psalmist is expressing defeat and hopelessness. In verse 9, again, I mingle my tears with my drink. So the psalmist can't even drink without literally just crying into his drink. And so all the, the life and joy that the psalmist might have experienced to this point just gives way to death and sadness. Verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. The psalmist's life is just, it's fading away. It feels like, you know, if you... Look, if you're looking for a shadow in the evening time, it's in the same way, nobody, nobody notices what the psalmist is going through. Finally, the psalmist says, I wither away like grass. So again, the psalmist is describing how fleeting his life is and the fact that his life is just shriveling up and he doesn't get to experience a peaceful, quiet ending to his life but there's just pain and sorrow. So I want to ask you, have you been there before? Have you, have you experienced what the psalmist is experiencing? Can you relate to this kind of pain? I know that many of you already have. I know in, in my own life, and I know just being a part of many of your lives and just kind of seeing and experiencing and, and walking with you through the kinds of trials that you all have been through. I, I know that when you read this, immediately there's there's... Throughout your mind, you're, all kinds of things are just going off, and you're reminded of the kind of sadness and sorrow and grief that you've had to bear in your own life, the kind of suffering that you've had to endure, whether it be physical sickness, whether it be the loss of a loved one, whether it be loneliness, whether it be just longing for relief. If you haven't experienced that, chances are you will. Chances are in your life you will experience this searing, unbridled grief like what the psalmist describes. So the question today is how will you respond? 
Will you minimize your pain and weakness? Will you kind of have the attitude of, look, I'm just going to suck it up and believe harder, all right? That's the only reason, the reason I'm feeling this sadness, the reason I'm feeling this grief is because clearly I'm not believing God's promises. So I just need to, look, I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to be positive. I'm just going to believe harder. Are you going to do that? Or are you going to follow the psalmist's example? Are we going to cry out to God? Are we going to admit how bad it really is and ask God for rescue? Before we started our series in the Psalms, we were, we were looking through the Gospel of Luke. And if you'll remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke about um, our posture before God. Are we those who come to God as those who are, we, we've got it all together and we know what we need to do in ourselves to get it together? Or do we come as needy beggars before God? What did Jesus say in Luke? Well, in Luke chapter 5, if you recall, when uh, Jesus was being criticized for hanging out with a bunch of sinners, okay? He's hanging out with, with all these tax collectors, and, and they're just, you know, they're, they're sitting there at the table, they're, they're having food, and, you know, they're, they're, you know we, we can just imagine that they're just hanging out and having a good time. The Pharisees criticize him. They say, look at this man. He's, he's, he's hanging out with sinners, what does Jesus say? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And again, in chapter 6 of Luke, Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying only those who come to God as poor, needy beggars will receive grace and mercy and blessing from God. We don't come before God and say, hey God, look, look at all my, my, my good things that I've done. Look at the good person that I've been. I've gone to church. I've, I've been good to my family. I've worked hard. I've been a, a, a nice person. I'm, I'm doing my best not to sin. I pray every day. Well, what, is, what does that get you? Well, it doesn't get you God's mercy and God's grace. Jesus says that those things, those are your reward. Those very things are your, are your reward. And whatever people might think of you, and congratulate you for, that's your reward. I think what the psalmist here in, in Psalm 102, and what Jesus' point in, in the Gospels is, is that we need to be honest with ourselves and with God about who we are and about the, the pain and the struggle and the hurt and our need for God. We need to be honest individually. And so what does it mean as an individual to be honest with ourselves and with God? What, what, what do I mean when I say that? Well, we need, to, we need to pray. When we pray, we are acknowledging, just by the simple fact of praying, we're acknowledging our need for God. We're acknowledging our dependence on God. We need to confess. We need to be humble. We need to be honest about everything, including our suffering no matter how bad it is. As a church, what does it mean for us to be honest with ourselves and with God? 
Well, I think it means that we need to develop a culture of vulnerability and transparency in this church. Okay, so if, if we have an attitude in this church that we're not, we're not here for, for people's struggles, we're not here for people's hurts. If you're, if you're going through a bad week, you're going through a bad struggle, you're, you're experiencing pain, listen, okay, that's, that's fine for you to mention it once or twice and just say, but let's, let's, not, let's not talk about that too much. Let's not dwell on that. We need to immediately, we need to talk about the good stuff. We don't want to hear your complaints. We need to suck it up. Believe harder. God is good. It's true that God is good. But I think what the psalmist here in Psalm 102 is showing us that the way that we connect with God's goodness in our suffering is to be real about our suffering. And we as a church, we as a church, if we cannot develop that culture of vulnerability and transparency, our, that's going to destroy our church. That the mindset of, that, that discourages vulnerability, well, that's actually going to destroy the community of our church. To build up our community, we need to point one another to this God that's described here in Psalm 102. If you're a parent, you, uh, you can relate with uh, kids who, they just want to do it themselves, right? I've got, you know, we've got kids here, and, uh, you know, oftentimes, like, you know, we're trying to buckle a seatbelt, you know, my four-year-old, I'm trying to buckle a seatbelt, he says, I got it, Dad, and I, you know, I know he doesn't have it, I'm like, all right, knock yourself out, and he's working on it, and he's, I got it, I got it, I got it, and then eventually he, I just kind of see the, the moment of realization wash over him, and he just kind of sighs, and he says, Dad, can you help me? And as a parent, I love that. I love hearing my kids say, Dad, can you help me? Because it's my joy to help my kids. I love helping my kids. And so in the same way, we need to come before God with a posture of asking for his help, a posture of neediness, not a posture of, hey, I got it, I got it. One more thing in this opening point that the psalmist helps us with, he shows us the, the causes of his suffering, or, or at least what he perceives to be the causes of his suffering. So in verse 8, uh, he says this. He says, All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. And so right there, he's, he's pointing to his enemies as being one source of, of pain, his enemies are taunting him. And in the Bible, you see in, in, in other places, and specifically in the Psalms, but also in, in other parts of the Old Testament, other nations do taunt God's people. They say, where is your God? Where, where is your God? We've defeated you, Israel. Where's your God now? And so surely that's the kind of thing that the psalmist has in his mind as he's suffering, his enemies taunt him. But not only that, look at verse 10. He says, because of your indignation and anger for you have taken me up and thrown me down. Apparently the psalmist believes that God is at least in part responsible for the suffering that he's enduring. And I think it's important that we, on the one hand, understand that God is never the source of sin and in right, unrighteousness and injustice. But God certainly does use our suffering as a, as a means of discipline. 
And whether it be something for our, for, you know, as, as, as in response to our own sin and God's disciplining us for our sin, he's giving us judgment in that, in that regard, or it could be God using our sin like he, like he did for, for Job to give us more of himself. In either way, God shows himself to be just, and he glorifies himself, and he, he builds us up. He teaches us through our suffering. God uses our suffering as, as a means of discipline. So what we want to see here, and, and we don't have all the time in the world, unfortunately, to go through this passage, but in verses 1 through 11, uh, the point that's being made is that God is the one who meets us in our worst suffering. He meets us in our worst suffering. And what we need to learn is that living as God's people means that we need to learn to honestly bring our pain to God and trust him to respond. And so how will God respond? That leads us to our second point. God responds with compassion. God responds with compassion, and that's going to be verses 12 through 22. And so the psalmist, after pouring out his complaint before God, what does he do? Well, he remembers who God is, and that gives the psalmist confidence in how God will respond. So if we look here at verses, uh, look here at verse 12, he says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout, your, throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. The appointed time has come, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. So right here, the psalmist is pointing out two important things about God. First, God is eternally sovereign in all things. God's eternally sovereign in all things. And then secondly, God has made a covenant with his chosen people, and he does not intend to break that covenant, okay? So the first point there, that, that God is eternally sovereign, we're actually going to return to that point a little bit later in our psalm here. Um, but it's important for us to recognize right now that God is perfect, he's completely in control, and our suffering is never too big for him. But here, what we want to focus on uh, for right now is the fact that God is the covenant keeper. So the psalmist recognizes God as the covenant keeper. And so in verse 13, he says, You will arise and have pity on who? On Zion. And he says it's the time to favor her. So who is he referring to when, he talks to, when he's talking about Zion? And God's going to have uh, a pity on Zion. It's the time to favor her. Well, he's referring to God's people. And specifically, this word Zion is, is meant to... Uh, it's meant to point to God's covenant with Israel. Uh, the fact that God gave his people a land. He called them out of slavery, gave them a law, gave them land, uh, gave them a temple uh, th- th- where they could worship him, it, uh, gave them a city, a chosen city, Jerusalem. And God says to his people Israel, you will be my chosen people, my chosen possession among all the nations. And all the nations are going to be blessed through you. And the nation that blesses you, I will bless that nation. So that's the covenant that God has made with his people. And so here, uh, the psalmist views th- his struggle right now in light of that. And he says, right now, God, remember your covenant. It's, it's the time to bless your people like you said you would. So he's recalling all of God's covenantal history with Israel, the covenant with, with Adam to reverse the curse, the covenant with Noah to preserve humankind, with Abraham to, to give 
descendants and land to Abraham to make him into a great nation. A covenant with Jacob that uh, there would be a, a, a Messiah, a holy one, who would come from, from Judah, one of, his, one of his sons, one of the tribes of Israel. A covenant with Moses, having rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He gives them a law, and he says, here's how you're going to worship me. Here's how you're going to relate with me as your God. It's through this law. A covenant with David, that there would be a forever king who would one day come and, and reign forever on David's throne. The psalmist recognizes that God will completely save his people on the basis of his covenant with them. Not on the basis of anything that they've done, but on, his, on the basis of his covenant with them. So what's God's covenant response to his people? In verse 13, we see that the psalmist uh, says, Arise, have pity. In verse 16, he says that the Lord builds up Zion. God's going to build up Zion, his people who've been broken down. In verse 17, God regards the prayer of the destitute, and he does not despise their prayer. God is tender and merciful and compassionate to his people. So how are you viewing God today? Are you viewing God as one who's angry and all just disappointed with his people? Or are you viewing God as a father who is excited to help, excited to rescue, eager to save? And not only this, but the psalmist shows us that these promises are ultimately not only for the benefit of, of ethnic Israel, but for all the nations. So in verse 18, he says this, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. And when peoples, and when peoples gather in kingdoms to worship the Lord. So you can see that the whole the psalmist's whole attitude has, has changed, and now he's joyfully looking ahead to the, the breathtaking scope of God's mercy. The scope that goes so much farther beyond just this one people that he's chosen. But in verse 18, he says, a generation yet to come, a people yet to be created. So in one sense, the, the psalmist is saying, okay, well, there's going to be a future, there's going to be future Israelites who will read this, that aren't alive right now, who will read this, and they're going to they're going to praise God. They're going to read the psalm, and they're going to look at how God has kept his promises, and they're going to praise him. And yet there's another dimension that we can, we can view this promise of that this people yet to be created. Who is this? Well, it's the, it's the nations, the nations who will be included in God's awesome salvation. Look at verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. God's going to gather worshipers from all over the world to know his salvation and to praise him. And then again in verse 20, uh, verse 21 and 22, he says, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples, so this word peoples, plural, people, gather together in kingdoms, plural, to worship the Lord. We're talking about nations 
a multitude of nations and kingdoms who are gathered together as one congregation, as one gathering, as one people to worship God. That's incredible. That's an incredible scope of God's mercy that's, that's being promised here. So how will God fulfill this promise? What's he going to do? How is he going to fulfill this? Well, God created all of us to know him, and yet this world is broken because of our sin. He created all of us perfect, or he created this world perfect, and he created us that we would love him and know him, but yet we see in the book of Genesis when Adam sinned, when Eve sinned, and together they, the, the, the whole humanity came from them. We were all born in rebellion to God. In our hearts, we don't naturally want to worship God. We want to follow our own way. Whatever we know to be true as right and wrong, we inherently fight against that because we, we want to define right and wrong for ourselves. We don't want God's definition of right and wrong. We don't want God to determine who we are and how we live our lives. And so God has promised each and every one of us that because he's good, because he won't let sin into his presence, because he won't allow his own standards to be lowered, his own righteous, holy standards to be lowered, in order for us to have a relationship with God, in order for us to be right with God, we need punishment. We need payment for our sin. And I don't know about you, but when I read about God, when I learn about God, and when I understand more and more who, who, who God is, the more I do that, the more I understand that I'm unable to bear that punishment on my own. I can't, I can't absorb God's wrath. Just the thought of it is terrifying. And yet, God has sent a Savior. He sent his own Son to bear that punishment in our place so that you and I wouldn't have to die. You and I wouldn't have to bear God's eternal punishment, eternal wrath for our sins, but that he would put that all on his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life that we failed to live, and he died the death that we, we couldn't die, and, and, and he absorbed the wrath that we couldn't absorb ourselves. And he rose again. He defeated death. And he promises that for those of us who, who repent of our sins, who turn from our sins and trust in him, we will have life with him together with God forever. That's the promise. That's the hope that's held out for us here. Here in Psalm 102 and in the rest of Scripture, it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus if we're willing to see. And so that's the hope that we hold out to you today. If you're if you know yourself not to be one who believes this, we plead with you to consider what the psalmist is leading us through today, what he's helping us with, to consider our trials, our sufferings, and know that God promises rescue from those sufferings, but only if we'll be honest about those sufferings and turn from our own sin and try to fix it ourselves and let him fix it, let him deal with it.
if you're a Christian today, let this be your hope as well. You're not hoping in your, your church attendance. You're not hoping in the, the ministries that you serve in or, or the, the, the good things that you do in life. You're hoping in Jesus alone. That's your hope. In verses 19 and 20, the psalmist gets even more explicit here. He says that God looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die. The psalmist is using here language from Exodus 24 to show us exactly the kind of redemption, the kind of rescue that God's going to accomplish, the kind of rescue that God has accomplished and will accomplish. In Exodus 24, we read these words, God heard their groaning, talking about Israel, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So he saw, he heard, as his people suffered and were oppressed in Egypt. And God rescued them. He heard them. He heard their cry, and he rescued them. See, the psalmist is reminding us of not only of just how God saved Israel, but he's reminding us of our our salvation in Jesus. Jesus is referred in Scripture, he's referred to in Scripture as our Passover lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises, all that redemption that God accomplished for his people. And that promise is also for us. So thirdly and finally, as we conclude our study in Psalm 102, we want to look at one third point briefly that God remains the sovereign king. The psalmist has already helped us to see how we can trust God with our suffering. And now he says this in verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So the psalmist here returns to speaking about his own suffering when he says, uh, you've broken my strength in mid-course. And this word, mid-course, I think the psalmist is saying, listen, this is in the middle of the story. God has brought suffering in my life. But I think it's important that we look at that word, mid-course, and to be reminded that the suffering here is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Even though the, the psalmist here recognizes that his earthly life might be shortened, it might be filled with, with suffering till the day that he dies, whenever that happens, God's eternal plan ends in victory and joy and rest for his people. That's the end of the story. It's not, it's not suffering. So we need to lift our eyes and, and see the whole story. I don't know how many of you are Star Wars fans, but does the story end with The Empire Strikes Back? No. All right? Like, and so just, you know, as a side note, you know, this movie came out 40 years ago, so if you haven't seen it by now, I'm sorry, I'm getting ready to spoil it, but it's been 40 years. 
Hopefully you've seen it by now. But in The Empire Strikes Back, the bad guy wins, okay? Darth Vader and all his guys, it looks like, okay, they've won. But no, that's not the end of the story. There's another movie after that that shows, no, the, the Jedi is going to come back and he's going to set things right. He's going to win in the end. So we don't want to look at our suffering as if it's the end of the story. We can't do that because that's where despair comes in. And that's where we lose hope. But our hope is found in the fact that even if we suffer for the rest of our earthly life, even if our life is shortened, God is going to raise us up. He's going to wipe every tear, and he's going to say, well done, come sit at my table. Come sit at my table. Here in verse 25, the psalmist says, of old you have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. I think here you can see the psalmist's logic that, okay, since God is the eternal king of everything, he can and will handle all of our suffering, whatever it is we're suffering through. So this world is broken and decaying, and it will all one day be swept away, but God's not going to abandon us. And God's not intimidated by whatever sufferings or evils or injustices we deal with in this world. He created everything. He rules over everything. And he is the just king, the merciful king, who will act according to his justice and mercy. This is something that should cause us to praise God. This should give us rest. This should give us confidence in the midst of our trials. Again, it doesn't mean that our trials aren't painful, but it means that it's not the end of the story. The psalmist here knows that, that God is the eternal king who loves his people. So in closing, let me say this to you. If you're suffering today, God wants to hear from you. God wants to hear from you. He wants you to cry out to him. He doesn't want you to depend on yourself, depend on your, your own experience, your own skills for handling life. He wants you to cry out to him, to take your complaint to him. I know that for a lot of you, complaining in the way that the psalmist does here, it doesn't feel comfortable, it doesn't feel right. But God wants to hear from you. And he's going to stir up gratitude. He's going to stir up joy and comfort and peace and confidence as you do that. If you're suffering today, let someone in your church family know about it. Let us pray for you. Let us encourage you. Let us help you. And finally, let's consider the suffering out there. When you, when you leave the walls of, of this church building in our own community and in the world, the amount of suffering, whether it be spiritual suffering or all kinds of uh, uh, physical suffering that happens, how can we be those who are outward facing with this message of hope and with whatever resources we have to alleviate worldly suffering but ultimately pointing people to the, the hope that's in, in God, the hope that's in Jesus? That's our mission as a church. It's to find this hope ourselves and to, to glory in this hope 
to rest in this hope and to point others to find it as well. Friends, God has not abandoned you. Your suffering is not the end of the story. And like the psalmist says, he's eternal and he hears you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you are a God who hears, who listens, who considers our pain, who considers our anguish. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that will humbly seek you, that will humbly lay out our hurt before you and find rest and joy in you. Father, I pray for our church that you would make us a community that encourages and nurtures this kind of humility, this kind of vulnerability and transparency. And as you do so, Lord, may we learn to love you more, to trust you more, and to discover the, the riches of your grace in being the one who comforts those who are living in sorrow. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus. We ask that you would make us faithful each day to joyfully proclaim the word of Christ. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.